0: on today's episode we are starting the new year with a QA episode welcome to the run smarter podcast the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier stronger smarter runner if you're like me running is life but more often than not injuries disrupt this lifestyle and once you are injured you're looking for answers Happy 2023, Run Smarter Scholars. Uh, We, Like I said last episode or the episode before that, these Q&A episodes seem to be highly popular. Downloads are quite high for these and getting a lot of engagement, a lot of questions coming in. So thanks to everyone for submitting those. Um, hope you're enjoying the festive season. Hopefully you're looking ahead to an exciting 2023. Hopefully you have some running goals or some running races to look forward to. Um, 2022 last year was, you know, came with a lot of successes. Um, I finally released the Run Smarter book, which took a really long time. And you know all about that after listening to previous episodes of me talking about the whole entire process. Um, not only did I release the book, but launched the YouTube channel, which I have some really big ideas coming up. Um, and I'll share those actually, I'll share it now. I have the idea to start rehabbing runners and documenting their journey from start to finish. I think, you know, the injury episodes, the success stories that I have on the podcast are quite popular. So thought not only just retrospectively asking them in an interview style, uh, for YouTube, a little bit more engagement, retention, a bit more storytelling, and actually go through it start to finish and package it all together into a a video, not sure how long it'd be, maybe 15 to 25 minutes, something like that. And hopefully catch some raw emotions, some excitement, some frustrations, and like I say, package it together into a compelling video. So I want to do that. And I want to have my own personal journey of trying to tell some rehab stories with um, higher and higher profile people. So bigger and bigger influencers, essentially. Which I'm already currently rehabbing about four people, and you know, not sure how long it'll it will take. Might take two months to rehab someone, but want to eventually start um, collaborating with bigger and bigger people to, you know, further bring awareness to the the channel, and also just you know, collaboration is always a good thing and seems to work really well. So I'll keep you updated on that. That is a very very long project, but hopefully starts to boom in the next, well, this coming year. And yeah, so excited for that. When it comes to the podcast side of things, um, I am almost, well, let me go through some download figures. If you're interested in that, um, the amount of downloads I had last year, 2022, 495,000 downloads, which is amazing. Um, And its growth from the year before, year before was 390,000 downloads. And that's saying a lot because as you know, halfway through the year, I moved, wasn't even halfway through the year, what month was that? I moved from two episodes per week to one episode per week. So less episodes going out, I would expect to see a slight dip in downloads, but it's actually maintained if anything um, continued to go up. And so very, very excited for that as the the actual channel and the the podcast itself is growing the most popular episode which i'm very proud of is episode number 1 <laughs> so you run smarter scholars are doing well episode 1 has 8300ish um so thank you for going back listening to the first episodes cuz that's how you take full advantage of this podcast listening to the first 10 um But the second most popular isn't episode two. It's actually my conversation with Matt Fitzgerald, which was run like a pro even if you're slow. Um, So that has um, about 8,000 downloads, uh, unique downloads. All time, I'm getting excited for this, the all-time downloads for this podcast is closely approaching 1 million, which is phenomenal. I'm at 970,000 downloads, so... There'll be a big celebration. I'll create a post or something when we reach that 1 million. But thanks for your support. Thanks for appreciating and recognizing that running smarter and knowledge goes a long way. So you've obviously found this podcast, found it useful and continue to invest in your your wisdom, your running IQ. So yeah, and I always appreciate the kind words that everyone sends out per week on Instagram or Facebook about... Um, how much this podcast has done, ha- how much has been beneficial to your running and your rehab, overcoming injuries, those sorts of things. So thank you. Warms my heart. <laughs> we have, like I said, a Q&A episode. I put posts out on Facebook, on Instagram, Instagram stories, and also in the patron group. Um, I won't be able to answer all of your questions because there's just so many that come in. Um, but the patrons do take priority. So today's episode is just answering the patron questions, and next episode, not we might do one, maybe two more episodes of Q A's, but that's when I have to start picking and choosing which ones might be the best. But um, a shout out to Laura, one of our patrons, who suggested the topic of orthobiologics, um, something I'm not familiar with. So um, she has sent me some papers which I'll look into. Laura, it is on my to-do list. Um, I have maybe the end of January, I'll start diving into that and releasing some episodes about that because it sounds quite interesting. The next patron question was from Steve. Steve says, I'm currently doing a run-walk program and I'm up to doing 30 seconds of running, 75 seconds of walking, and doing that eight times. Steve would like to increase. He's unsure when he should increase, how much uh, of an increase is sensible, and asking if he should reduce the reps or increase the walk time. Thanks for your question, Steve. I know a lot of the listeners would be having the same particular question. First of all, Happy New Year, Steve. Um, Firstly, I don't think there's much of a right or wrong, but it just needs to make sense on paper. So write out your plan on paper, see what the overall volume of running is in that particular section. So if you're at 30 seconds of running and you're doing that eight times. That's, you know, four minutes of running. Um, You also want to look at the overall session duration and just make sure that step by step, it makes sense. It's not too much of a jump. Um, I will go through sort of my um, preferences when it comes to a run-walk schedule. But like I say, there's no right or wrong. Yes, if you double your amount of running, that might be a bit too much unless it's in the very, very small volumes to start with. So you might go from one minute of running to two minutes of running, that's double. You might go from two minutes to four minutes, that's also double again, but isn't too much of a jump. If you go from 10 minutes to 20 minutes, maybe that's too much, but you'll know if it's too much because symptoms will tell you. And if it is too much, you learn from it and then you go back to the drawing board once things have calmed back down to baseline so anyway um my favorite or my preference i like to start people with 60 seconds of jogging followed by two minutes of walking so it's like a one minute on two minutes off and if that's too much for someone when they very first start which is quite rare um, i will then back it off to 30 seconds so we'll learn from that first attempt if the 60 second intervals are too much And then I'll back off to 30, but I always like to start at 60. And based on the level of injury, I like to start anywhere between four and eight rounds. If someone's quite stable and I think they're, they're okay, but they haven't done running for a long time, I'll do that one on two off and I'll do about eight rounds. If someone's really sensitive, um, but I feel like they'll be able to tolerate at least some level of jogging. I'll do, again, one on, two off, but maybe five rounds instead of that eight. So this is where you sort of pick your patient based on how you feel, what the level of stability or severity of that injury is. So from there, we've got, like I say, one minute on, two minutes walk. um, And I'll slowly build up that ratio up to about 10 to 15 rounds. So all in all, you're sort of accumulating about 10 minutes of running or 15 minutes of running then I like to up the ratio and do two minutes of running, two minutes of walking. But I would back off the amount of repetitions because like I say, we don't want to double our running. So if you're doing 15 minutes of running in the one-on, two-off ratio, and then we go to two-on, two-off, we'd probably back off the entire uh, the amount of rounds to about four or five. So that actually sort of keeps to the same volume of running but the ratio changes once you can tolerate that. And we slowly build up to 10 rounds. So you're doing 20 minutes of running all up 40 minute session. Like I say, two on two off that's when the session itself starts to you know, become quite long, a 40 minute session of run walk. I wouldn't want to go much beyond that. So then I change the ratio again. I still keep the two minutes of running, but the two minutes of walking, I then cut in half to one minute of walking. So the ratio now is two on, one off, and then I'll slowly build from there. So um, once we've built up enough of that, and I feel like the injury is really stable, then I increase the minutes per run. So the ratio would go from two minutes on, one minute off, to then three minutes on, one minute off, then four minutes on, one minute off, then five minutes on, one minute off. And you can see that this builds up quite quickly and Once I get to about five or six minutes on, one minute off, that's providing a lot of stability. And that's when we start to trickle in some continuous running. So continuous running will be 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes continuous. And like I say, like I said at the start, there's no right or wrong, but this is how I like to go about things. This is my rationale when it comes to um, building up a run-walk program. I think if you were to do 10 rounds of six minutes running, one minute walking, that's 60 minutes of running in total and 70 minute session, you should be able to easily tolerate 10 to 15 minutes of running. So we try that. It might start with a run walk to build things up and warm things up and then into continuous and then maybe finish with a run walk. So sort of sprinkling into continuous into that particular session. So, Back to your question, Steve, uh, when to progress, um, my last, I guess when to progress would be dependent on what stage you're at. If we're doing the very initial stages where we're doing one minute on two minutes off and only doing five or six rounds, you can progress every single session, every single session, if symptoms allow, and if your body is tolerating it and you feel like that was successful. By all means, you can move to the next stage. So if you're running three or four times per week, you could progress three or four times. But um, this is where we need to be a bit sensible and say that if you, you wouldn't keep that rate of progression for something at the later stages. Like I said, if we're increasing from, if we're doing, four minutes on one minute off, then five minutes on one minute off, then six minutes on one minute off. That rate of progression probably needs to be about once a week, if symptoms allow. And if that does happen, um, if you go from session to session, build that up, that is way too much of a ramp up. But um, that's where your body will tell you. And that's where on paper, it will look like it's too much. So that's why I say you sort of write it down. There's no right or wrong, but it needs to make sense on paper. Have a look at the overall volume of running that you're doing. Have a look at the overall volume of that particular session and then see if it makes particular sense. Okay. Um, How much of an increase is sensible was another part of your question, Steve. Um, It doesn't hurt to be cautious. If you're worried, if you're unsure, if you're not like If you're a little bit apprehensive to progress, just make sure it's gradual. And if it's a little bit too much, then your body will tell you. Then we go back to the drawing board. Um, You know, the clients who have worked with me before, when they're a bit apprehensive or not that confident or unsure, I say, all right, let's do the next little thing. It might be super minute and at least we've got progressions in mind. At least we're, you know, sort of building up upon that And so, yeah, I, am always not gonna, unless you've got a race coming up and you really want to take on the risk if that's the case. Um, but in any other case, I would appreciate the more sensible approach and it doesn't hurt to be on the cautious. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Side. Lastly, you asked um, Steve, should I reduce the reps or increase the walk time? It depends. I probably wouldn't increase walk time. Uh, usually with the Run-Walk program, you know, the idea is to build up volume and build up more and more running. Um, Unless against like sort of unique circumstances, I wouldn't build up the walking. I would reduce the walking, build up the running. And if your body isn't responding well to that, then maybe just stay at a level you can tolerate. But hopefully that makes a bit of sense. Okay, our next patron question comes from Craig. Craig says, about how long does strength training take to show any results in the running? How many hours a week of strength training do you recommend? Happy New Year, Craig. Thanks for submitting your question. Um, Let's start with what type of running gets superior results. You probably know this already, but um, I thought if someone isn't familiar, if we're on the topic, might as well um, talk about it. So research will show that when you commit to strength training, you want to um, head down the slow, heavy progressive type of strength training, rather than down the path of body weight, high rep ranges. A lot of runners, they stick to what they're good at, and a lot of them just like running, but if we eventually convince them to start strength training, they go into the gym, they do lighter stuff, body weight, calf raises, lunges, squats, those sorts of things, and when they do increase the weight, they just keep to high rep ranges like three or four sets of 15 or 20, those ranges. And if you're just starting out and getting used to technique, totally fine. But as the months progress and as you get more confident, as you get more used to that exercise, the idea, if you want to carry over some um, benefits into your running performance, you need to start tapping into the slow, heavy stuff. So increasing the weight for your squats, for your deadlifts, for your calf raises, for your lunges, those sorts of things. And, um, that would be like the bulk of your strength training. If you want to sprinkle on a couple of percenters here and there, um, you might want to do some power-based stuff or plyometric type of stuff. Um, but that's only sprinkling on a bit of, um, added benefit. You, the bulk of the stuff should be the slow, heavy stuff. To answer your question, Craig, about how long does strength training take to show results? Um, I could just pull up a study. I've got a really nice study here. Um, The title was Concurrent Complex and Endurance Training for Recreational Marathon Runners, Effects on Neuromuscular and Running Performance. Um, I actually did a whole entire episode on this study because it was so fascinating in terms of its... um, Results and like the study design, Um, really, really happy with it. And what they did was take marathon runners, recreational marathon runners into three groups to do the same identical training in their running. But um, when they divided into three different groups, they did three different strength training approaches. The first group did the body weight type of stuff or like light weights, kept the rep ranges quite high. The second group did the slow, heavy stuff. The third group still did the slow, heavy stuff, but not to the same volume. They backed off the overall volume a little bit just so they could add in a little bit of power-based exercise, which is what the um, concurrent, the complex group was. So when they say current, complex, and endurance training in the title, the complex refers to the, both the heavy and the, the plyometric power-based stuff. And what they showed was that group two and group three, so the the heavy strength and the complex strength showed the same amount of improvements, whereas the endurance didn't show as much. Um, And again, to answer your question, Craig, they did this intervention in six weeks and they showed results and they did this two times per week. So um, this, the study itself quoted, so six weeks of concurrent complex or heavy strength training resulted in similar improvements on maximal strength, jumping performance, running economy, and VO2 max in recreational marathon runners. And like I say, that first group didn't show, um, the, those same results. So that's six weeks, um, And I would say six weeks is probably the minimum you're going to find. I, you know, most other studies that I've come across, they do an intervention for six to twelve weeks, um, just to see if the results carry over. But this one said six weeks, and I would say that's probably the bare minimum. Actually, surprised to see improvements in six weeks. So um, I guess that's it's encouraging for a lot of people. Um, When it comes to how long. What was was the other thing in your question? Um, How long does it take? Or how many hours a week of strength training do you recommend? Um, I don't know about the hours. I know about the sessions. It depends how efficient you are at working within that session because you could superset um, a couple of exercises and get done a lot more efficiently than if you just did one exercise at a time. But I usually recommend if you're just starting out, if you're a beginner, just learning technique, um, you need to do lighter weights just while you get used to those exercises. I recommend doing that about two or three times a week. Like I say if you're a beginner, um, if you start to get more experienced and you start to lift heavier, we actually need to back off the frequency so that so that the Doms and the soreness from those sessions don't carry over and disrupt too much of your weekly plan. And if you do it twice a week you're still seeing you'll still see a rate of progression quite a lot. So, Two to three times a week for a beginner, just learning the technique, just doing lighter weights just so your body gets used to it. Two times a week when lifting heavy. And like I said, you can do squats, lunges, calf raises, and deadlifts. That's like a good um, foundation to build upon. And how long it takes you, I'm not entirely sure. Um, You know, there could be some... I'd say for that particular session, that might take 40 minutes if you superset everything. Um, by superset, I mean do squats one set. And then when, when you're recovering from the squats, you then do calf raises. So you do one set of that. And then you go back to the squats and then back to the calf raises and you superset those two exercises so that you don't have to rest a lot and you're constantly moving. Um, so doesn't have to be a lot if you want that minimalistic foundation approach. Um, So you can do that two times a week, but you can also do it once a week, once if you're in maintenance phase, if you don't want to progress your strength, but you have a race coming up and you're in this peak training volume where you you want to dedicate most of your efforts towards building up the mileage, then you might want to back it off to once a week because once a week you won't progress and see results, but you'll maintain the strength that you have. So that could be a good approach as well. If you're not seeing results um, and you're you're doing your strength training, not seeing a carryover in your improvement, there's a ton of things that you could troubleshoot, but just make sure you're getting the right training and recovery, making sure that you're not doing too much or lifting too heavy. Because if you have DOMS that carries over for three or four days, then you're probably lifting too heavy or too intense and you might need to back that off. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're optimising your recovery, make sure that your training loads when it comes to your running is optimised for results. A few things you need to check there, so just a few um, troubleshooting problems. A happy new year to Joanne, who says, I have a treadmill that has adjustable cushioning, softer or more like a road. I usually run barefoot on it. I always wear minimalist shoes for outdoor runs is it beneficial to have a more firmer setting? I only ever run up to 6Ks on it. Um, Very interesting. I've never seen a particular function on a treadmill that has adjustable cushioning, so well done. (laughs) Um, Generally speaking, my first reaction is that firmer surfaces are actually helpful, um, helpful for running efficiency. So if you, let's just say if someone's, runs on a surface that has a lot of give um, sometimes a, a little bit of give is okay so if someone runs on grass yes grass is soft but if the under surface, the soil and that sort of stuff is quite firm and dry then you'll land and it'll create like a bit of a cushion but then the push off when you've pushed through the grass and actually have to push off with your foot it's actually quite firm this is different to say grass that's quite thick and has like softer soil underneath um, where when you go to push off it actually sinks a little bit gives um, or sand like soft sand um, can be quite tricky because when that type of um, terrain and surface is there when you go to push off your muscles actually have to work harder and it's incredibly inefficient anyone can picture themselves running on really soft sand and putting in all this energy, your muscles and your legs are working hard, you're just not going anywhere. And that's because it's very inefficient. And we don't want our muscles to do that because they're working very hard for not a lot of return and can link to like overuse injuries. Cause like I say, they're working very hard. And so my advice generally gut instinct is like, okay, stick to the firmer surfaces. Um, but who knows, like your treadmill might have that soft, Land, but then firm push off type of thing. Uh, but again, my advice would probably change quite a lot because you say you're running in bare feet, and in my opinion, um, you sort of have a narrower margin for error when you do run barefoot, and so cushioning might be advantageous for you. Um, I have I've done an episode on this before, but I I, I talk about a tightrope walker analogy when it comes to reducing your risk of injury and there can be some elements in your running or the shoes that you wear, the terrain that you run, your overall technique and cadence and strength, capacity, all those sorts of things where you can survive, you can run and be pain-free but you might be operating with a very, very narrow tightrope. Let's just say for example if you are a barefoot runner and you don't have a lot of strength, and you um, your cadence is quite low. People can run, and run pain-free, and be symptom-free for, or like run for a year without getting injured. That's fine, but their narrow wiggle room of training that might tip them over the edge into injury territory is a lot more narrow than someone who has an ideal cadence, who is a bit more sensible with their footwear, or has a little bit more of a buffer there. And so this is what I think about if you're on the treadmill and you're always running bare feet, totally fine. Might narrow your rope just a little bit and perhaps something lighter, softer to impact the ground that still has a bit of a firm push-off. You might have, might have that happy medium there. Um, also consider, since... I know I talked to Mikhail Montgomery about the importance of iron and I have had other podcast listeners such as Lena, who's brought to my attention, the, um, phenomenon of red blood cells kind of being damaged when you actually hit the ground and, um, whether it is an issue for some people, more of an issue for others, if you're constantly impacting the ground without any protection, maybe that can be some damage to red blood cells, which can impact um, iron function and those sorts of things. So another little element to consider. Um, so thanks for your question. Uh, I hope that ha- helps answer something. Maybe it changes your approach to, to these sorts of things. Um, in most cases, just as a broad sense, there, there probably isn't a right or wrong, just a bit more of a, a riskier approach. But if you like that approach and you want to continue down, there'd be nothing wrong with it. Last question comes in from Chitra. Happy New Year, Chitra. Um, and she asks, any advice on keeping a higher cadence when running slow? I seem to speed up to keep up my cadence around 170. Good question. Um, the thing is with cadence. So the when you run at a certain speed, Let's just say you're doing your normal sort of running. Um, your cadence can hover, um, I, I usually say 168, above 168 or 165, depending. If you're really tall, it can be a bit lower. But generally speaking, if you're between 165 and 185, it's it's okay um, for most. When you start running slower than what your usual speed is or your normal kind of pace your cadence shouldn't fluctuate that much. It can drop a little bit, but I've seen a lot of people significantly drop their cadence and that usually signifies a very inefficient, sloppy kind of run. And so it's always interesting if someone has a cadence of 170 and they, during their really, really slow runs, they drop to 165, no big deal. But I've seen people drop into the 150s uh, when they're running slow that would indicate to me for most that they can help improve their efficiency a bit more. And so um, Chitra's question when trying to maintain a high cadence is actually she starts running too fast. And this is um, an indication if that's happening, you're probably taking steps that are too large because speed, how fast you move is dictated by two things. One, it's how fast your legs are turning over, so your cadence or your stride frequency or how many steps you take per minute, so how quick the legs are turning over. And then it's a factor of how big those steps are. If you correlate those two things, that would dictate your speed. There's, no, there's nothing else. Um, if you want to increase your speed, you need to either increase your cadence at the same step length that you'll get faster that way, or you take... Larger steps at the same cadence that will also help you speed up. So those two things, um, the relationship of those two will, um, dictate how fast you run. So going back to Chitra's equation, she's trying to keep her cadence at 170 and is starting to run too fast. Well, then the only other part of the only other component of that equation is the step length, which will say, okay, your step length is too large if your goal is to slow down. So um, that's usually what I would say. Um, If you're speeding up above something that you don't want to be, take shorter steps. Just try and consciously take shorter steps. Um, If that is still bothering you and you're finding that hard to maintain, I would question what the cadence actually is. Um, If your cadence is 170, maybe you can drop it down to one. 65. Maybe for you, that's an optimal cadence at a slow speed. But if you did want to do some retraining, um, my advice would be to do it with a metronome. So if your goal is to set it to 170, set it to 170. And if you have access to a treadmill, then you can dictate your speed. So if we're looking at Chitra and saying, okay, the one component in there is step length, and we wanna try and manipulate that step, step length, then we take those other two components of the equation, so speed and cadence, and we control those two variables. So we control the cadence with the metronome and we control the speed with the treadmill. So we assign, we set the speed on that treadmill and that doesn't change. So then if, you're, if you run on the treadmill and you stay in one spot, your body has no choice but to take shorter steps. Otherwise, you're either going to um, take large steps and go too slow and fall off the back, or you're going to hit the front of the treadmill. So as long as you stay on the belt, you're retraining your body to take those shorter steps. I hope that makes sense Um, and can be nice for someone, no matter what their equation, because some people might say, you know, I struggled just to run at a higher cadence. I struggled to speed up and maintain a certain cadence. I struggle to maintain a certain cadence when I run slow. All of those um, can be manipulated, like I say, with a metronome and with a a treadmill. And then you can practice that, get used to it, sort of get an inbuilt sense of what that feels like. And then you can start transitioning to overground where you don't have a treadmill that dictates your pace and um, just slowly wean off that. Hope that made sense. Chitra, thank you for your question. Thanks to everyone who submitted their questions. Um, thanks for listening as well. I'll be back next week with another Q&A and I'll start picking through the Facebook and Instagram responses. So once again, like I say, thanks for listening. And as I sign off, remember every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your run smarter path.